0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So if if you've been in Houston for any amount of time and you've had the opportunity, um, I, I wouldn't call it a glorious opportunity, but an opportunity nonetheless to drive to Dallas Uh, My manuscript says leave time for booing here when I mention Dallas. Um, Or San Antonio or really any other city in Texas, you've seen these signs. They're big, they're obvious, they have a goofy looking beaver on them. And they serve to build your expectation for a clean bathroom, a cold drink, cheap ice, Which I'm told is the very bedrock of their business model. And if you really need it, tacky lawn art. I found a picture on Reddit um, this week of a Bucky sign on I 10 in Florida that just says in big yellow letters 797 miles. And and so Bucky's is insane with these billboards. Especially with the thought of building anticipation for a gas station 800 miles away. You would think that somewhere between Florida and Houston there's a clean bathroom, but given the states that it travels through, maybe not. But they, they serve their purpose well. right? We've all been lured in. We've seen these signs and thought, I can hold it. I know the pressure's building, but I can make it 36 more miles. And so they, they build expectation. They, they build us with anticipation for the experience of a Walmart sized gas station with clean bathrooms and those delicious cinnamon roasted pecans. And, and so they build this expectation. And so what we've found as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke is is something similar and that the author of Luke, since chapter 9, has been giving us billboards for anticipation for the moment that we've arrived at today. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is in the very northern regions of Judea, near the Sea of Galilee over a hundred miles from Jerusalem, and Luke says this. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This verse happened to, to be written shortly after Jesus descended from the Mount of Transfiguration, where he showed Peter, James, and John a vision of his future glory that would be fully revealed when he accomplished the exodus that would happen when he got to Jerusalem. In fact, verse fifty-nine of chapter, 51 of chapter 9 is not even the first billboard that Luke gives us. Even when they're on the mountain of transfiguration, we, we see Elijah and Moses, two Old Testament prophets, on the mountain speaking to each other. And this is what they say in verses 30 and 31. They say, and behold, two men were talking with him on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, everything that Luke writes is pointing toward our text for today. Chapters 9 through 19 are constantly Reminding us that the climax of this narrative will be found when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And Luke is constantly using language of Jesus and his disciples going through from town to town, passing through on their way to Jerusalem. In these 11 chapters, there are 10 significant billboards. I've already read two of them. But they're telling us that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, something important is going to happen. In fact, the very reason that Luke Luke wrote this book is because of what is going to be accomplished when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. In these 11 chapters, Luke writes, Jesus and the disciples went on to another village. They were going along the road. As they went on their way, as he went away from there, he went On his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem as he drew near to Jericho. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And then last week, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Luke's point is clear. Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, and now that he is very close to Jerusalem, everyone is starting to feel the tension of something important on the horizon. In fact, as Jesus gets near to Jerusalem, it's said that, that the people are beginning to expect that the kingdom of God is going to immediately appear when he gets there. And although Jesus made it clear in the parable that we read last week, that the kingdom of God is not going to show up in the way that they expect. The kingdom of God is no less at hand. And so if this is going to continue with the billboard theme, this is the point in Luke's gospel where there would be a big exit now sign. We have reached our destination. It's time to take the service road down into Jerusalem and see how this story comes to a climax. And so our text for today begins this way. Luke writes, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into a village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so, from the mountain of transfiguration in chapter 9, Jesus has journeyed to another mountain, the Mount of Olives. And if you've been with us throughout this journey through Luke, you know that in, in the Bible, mountains are always significant. They always serve as markers of places where God reveals His glory. Places where God makes and establishes covenant promises. So it is significant to note that Luke put up the first billboard on a mountain. And now we have arrived at another mountain. From a scene of glory to another scene of glory. Luke is bringing us and begging us to lean in to the arc of the narrative that he's constructed for us. He's giving us all the signs that the climax of his gospel account are coming. The question is, how is this text today, how is this simple text about Jesus riding a colt into Jerusalem part of that climax? What does God really want us to see in this text that many of us have probably read many times before? I think we would do well to start by just taking a 30,000-foot view of the passage. And so I'll, I'll read the rest of it, what we've not yet read. So these disciples who were told to go get the colt, they were sent away and found the colt just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus tells his disciples to go and and find this cult that he knows will be in this village that he's not yet been in. And, And so already in the text, we're seeing Jesus' power and his ability to know all things at work. And his disciples obey him, and it goes exactly the way Jesus said. And they come back with this colt, and they place Jesus on him, and they proceed down the mountain rejoicing and praising God. So this is a big moment. And they're making claims that their humble rider, Jesus, is a king. And they've sequestered this colt like a king would. And they're treating him like a king. They're, they're praising him. They're laying cloaks in front of him so that the colt that he's riding doesn't even touch the ground. A red carpet. This is causing a scene on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees, an extremely devout Jewish sect who we've seen time and time again prove to be the opposition to Jesus and his disciples, do exactly what we might expect them to do if we've been reading the gospel. They find the whole display to be vulgar. It's blasphemous. It's disrespectful. These disciples are chanting the Hallel, which is an, an important Jewish prayer that's used at festival times about Jesus being the king. Like the whole thing is very out of line. And, and Jesus responds with a line that seems like it might come out of like a, a really well-written novel or a Clint Eastwood movie or something. And he says, "If I, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would So even if we stopped here and didn't do any more digging into the text, we would see a momentous event preparing us for some ultimate conflict and resolution. When Jesus finally arrives in in Jerusalem, this is just how narratives work. The king is opposed, but the king will be worshipped, even if inanimate objects have to do it. If this were a moment in a movie, this is when we would all decide that that we need to stay in our seat, no matter how much we want a bucket of popcorn. Something big is coming. Jesus and the author of this account, Luke, are showing us what is going to fundamentally take place as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. It's not just an account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but but underneath, if we dig a little bit, we'll see that that really Luke is showing us what Jesus is going to accomplish when we enter Jerusalem with him. The question is, what, what is that? What is going to be accomplished? What should we expect as we enter into Holy Week? And as I've said throughout our time in Luke, Luke is concerned with fulfillment. He's deeply concerned that the things in the Old Testament scriptures are shown to be fulfilled in Jesus. And we've also said time and time again that when we read the Bible, there is always more going on than what initially meets the eye. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, or if you're not, or maybe even if you're familiar with Indiana Jones, you're well aware of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the the place where God's presence dwelt in a particular way in the tabernacle and temple of Israel. It was this ornate altar. And atop the altar was an ornate seat called the mercy seat, which is where the high priest every year would sprinkle blood of sacrifice for the atonement of sin so that the people of Israel might be forgiven. But the ark was extremely important for Israel, primarily because it's this powerful reminder that God's presence and love for them is among them. That God's mercy for them is constant and sure because truly in the ark did God dwell. Such that when the priests would go in, a cloud would cover the tabernacle or the temple. God's presence was really there. And in the days before Israel even had a king, early in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel were led by priests and Samuel tells us that, that the priests were worthless. These were bad and corrupt men. And they didn't o- obey God. They didn't respect the significance of, of God choosing to dwell in the tabernacle through the ark. And, and so one day, the Philistines and the Israelites were at war and in First and 2 Samuel, the Philistines are the primary enemy to the people of God. And the Philistines are coming on strong and the Israelites are, are kind of, they're feeling pushed back. And so they get this idea that maybe if we go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to the battlefield, then we'll have God's presence with us in battle. We'll take him out of the holy place and we'll put him on the battlefield so that he can fight for us. And, and the priests who were worthless said, yeah, that sounds fine. We'll, we'll bring the Ark out. And, and the Philistines conquered the Israelites. And they took the ark. And they took the ark of the covenant and they placed the ark of the covenant in the temple that they had for their false god named Dagon, who is this stone statue. And so God is now in, in, in another god's tent, a false god's tent. He's in the enemy camp. His people have foolishly lost his presence. But the next day, the Philistines go into the sanctuary and they find that Dagon, this This stone statue is face down in the sanctuary. Like God had made this this other false god to be face down, dead, but worshiping. And over the course of the next seven months, while God was in the enemy camp, all these plagues started to strike the Philistines. And finally, because the Philistines were so weakened by the fact that God was at war in their camp, the Israelites finally were able to overtake them and retrieve the ark. So God was once again in the camp of his people. And then 20 years later in Second Samuel, Israel at this point has a, a king and he's a great king named David. And David and his army had defeated the Philistines. And so David gathers all his mighty men and they take the ark of the covenant victoriously into a city called Jerusalem which David would make the capital city of God's kingdom. And so they have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The the great king of Israel with the presence of God is coming into the city. And so as you can imagine, David and his mighty men are, are shouting and they're dancing and they're praising God for all his mighty works, for the ways that he has delivered them from the hand of the Philistines, for the ways that now his presence will dwell in this holy city. And David, David goes in and he makes sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then he wears a linen ephod like, like long johns and he's dancing before the Lord. So this is the first triumphal entry of the king of Israel with the presence of God into Jerusalem. But when when they get into the city, there's a woman who thought David's dancing was totally out of line. She thinks that, that him dancing, especially in this linen ephod, that the whole thing is profane, and she opposed the king. But David told her, That he would celebrate before the Lord because the Lord had chosen him and because the Lord had done mighty works worthy of being celebrated. And she was welcome to hate him. But God himself did not find her welcome to hate him. He was furious that she had opposed his worship. and, And what God did is he closed her womb. Her hope was not in God, and God decided that no more would she bear any fruit. So if we fast forward to the time of Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant was once again lost. The Babylonians had conquered Israel, and the people of Israel hadn't seen the Ark in almost 600 years. The temple has been devoid of the particular presence of God and the mercy seat of God for 600 years. The cloud of God's glory hadn't been seen in half a millennia. And so so even so, the religious elites of Israel are still putting all of their hope in the temple system, making sacrifices without a mercy seat on the altar, making sacrifices in a room devoid of God's presence. And in our text today, Jesus is, is a king, once again, leading his people into Jerusalem, singing and dancing and praising God for all his mighty works. And and when he does this, the king is going to be opposed. And then the king will, like David, respond to his opposition with a promise that God will be worshipped, regardless of their opposition. If the scene from our text today of Jesus entering Jerusalem sounds a lot like the scene from 2 Samuel chapter 6 that I told you about, this isn't a coincidence. There are no coincidences in God's story. Jesus' triumphal entry is purposefully echoing 2 Samuel 6. In Jesus, the presence of God is coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is leading God's people in victorious procession. Jesus isn't bringing with him the missing Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat for sacrifice back into the temple. He doesn't need to. Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. He is truly where God dwells, and he is the true source of mercy for God's people. The people of Israel no longer need the Ark for God's presence. Because in Jesus' flesh, the fullness of God dwells. And he will soon pour out his Spirit on his people. So that the presence of God will not have to hide in a temple or a tabernacle, but God will make his people his temple and tabernacle. But first, like the ark had to go into exile in the Philistine camp, to conquer the enemies of God's people, so will Jesus go into the enemy's camp to have victory over the people's greatest enemies. Though many of them thought it was the Roman Empire, it was in fact the power and guilt that comes from sin and the sting and bitterness that comes from death. In 2 Samuel 6, when David and his men brought the ark back into Jerusalem, David goes in and he makes sacrifice. And he danced in linen clothes. When Jesus gets into Jerusalem, being an even better king than David, he will also make sacrifice on behalf of the people in the form of himself. He will sacrifice himself so that his people might be free so that they might understand the fullness of God's love and the mighty works that he's accomplished. And when he dies, Jesus will be wrapped in a linen ephod. And like David, he will dance. He will dance upon sin and death themselves in victory. So when David danced and rejoiced, he was opposed, but his enemy bore no fruit from that day forward. And when Jesus comes into the city with a multitude rejoicing, the religious elites of Israel opposed him. And eventually all the people in Israel will oppose him. But when Jesus' work in Jerusalem is done, the temple system, which they put their hope in, will be made obsolete. And it will never bear fruit again because in Jesus there will be a better temple, a more complete sacrifice, and readily available presence of God for all who would come to him. And 2 Samuel 6 is not the only passage from the Old Testament that's echoed in in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. His kingly procession on a colt is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies about this great king who will bring salvation to all of God's people. He says this in chapter 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion being Jerusalem or, or Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Jesus is not only the presence of God returning to the people of God, but he is the king of promise who brings salvation and good news and final victory, making God's people his treasure and displaying God's glory. A glory so palpable that he tells the Pharisees that if nobody worshipped him, the stones would cry out because they couldn't stand the silence. So as we enter into Holy Week, how are we to respond? How are we to respond to this text? Well, I know that I'm feeling caught up in the tension. I know that I am feeling the full weight of this story coming to a climax. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and for 11 chapters we've been waiting for it, and they're hailing him as a king of promise, full of God's presence. He's the ultimate giver of mercy. He will be the place of sacrifice. He's going to be rejected. He's going to go into exile on behalf of his people. He's going to have victory behind enemy lines and return victorious having offered sacrifice and danced in linen clothes. He will will accomplish the exodus that Moses and Elijah talked about, providing all people who would turn to him true freedom from slavery to sin, salvation from the power of death, everlasting love and rest and belonging. And so when I think about how we respond to this text, I, I consider that there are three groups of people in this story. There are the ones celebrating, singing, dancing, and worshiping, hailing Jesus as king. There were those who were probably just looking on at, at this, this massive excitement from the sidelines, unsure of what to make of it and there were those who outright opposed it because they thought it was offensive or unnecessary. And then I thought, well, well, today, that's going to be the same thing in this room. There are going to be some of us who are so excited about what it is that Jesus has accomplished and is going to accomplish that we won't be able to help but sing and dance and shout for joy. There are others here who are interested in what's going on, not quite sure of what to make of it, not quite sure of what we make of Jesus, or, or maybe not sure of what we make of his people. But, but we'll watch. We'll stay tuned. And, and some of us in the room have opposed Jesus. We've opposed his people. We've thought worshiping him was foolish at best or Troublesome at worst. And so how should these three groups respond? Well, here's what I believe the text is calling us to. To to all three of those groups. The text is begging us to see the story come to a climax. To see the full picture of what God is going to do over the next eight days. For those who worship Jesus gladly, this week invites you to look at him afresh, that you might see that he is even more glorious than you already knew him to be, that he's even more loving than you knew that he was, that his sacrifice and suffering in light of your sin are even more remarkable and graceful. Maybe you'll see his humility and his glory and be compelled to sing and dance and cry and, sh- and shout out in ways that you have never been called to do. But the text is nonetheless asking that you lean in. I, I know that I n- never want to grow tired of considering how wonderful the salvation of Jesus is. I never want to grow tired of of just crying out about the mighty works that God has done for me, that formerly I was dead, but now he's made me alive, that formerly I was, was marked by guilt and shame, but now he's given me forgiveness and freedom, that formerly I was powerless, but now he's given me his spirit. And maybe this week we'll be rejuvenated by that. And then for those of us in the room who are are more on the curious or skeptical and not yet committed side of things, I would just invite you to come along. But come with us into Jerusalem and see what Jesus is going to accomplish. Just look at it with your own eyes because he has come to Jerusalem for you. He's going to be rejected by the people so that you can be accepted by God and by his people. He's going to descend to the grave so that you never have to taste the sting of death. He's going to pour out his blood so that you can have complete forgiveness. He's going to defeat your enemies In their own camp. Satan, sin, death, shame, guilt, a troubled past. He's going to go behind enemy lines and he's going to emerge victorious in resurrection. And he's going to offer you the full weight of that victory. Just come into Jerusalem because the king desires to show you his glory. He desires to give you his grace. He desires to show you that he is the new mercy seat from which all of God's mercy comes, and it's unending. And for those of you in the room who have been marked by opposition to Jesus, or by opposition to his people, I also ask you to come into Jerusalem. I ask you to look upon Jesus this week, knowing that his victory is unmatched that his throne is forever, it will never end. His glory unending, his grace available even to you. You do not have to continue to oppose him. The Bible is clear that it won't go well for you if you do. But the Bible is also clear that our King of Promise will gladly receive you with open arms, full of grace, full of love, forgetting your former transgressions and calling you a son or a daughter and a friend. You don't have to worship. But I pray this week that if you seek silence from it, that the rocks start crying. Please, would you look upon the Savior? Allow your heart to turn toward him. Allow his love to overwhelm you. Allow his glory to transform you. He's the king of love and his kingdom is one of life and light and peace. And while it may seem like we're nearing the climactic end of the story, the gospel of Jesus' work in Jerusalem is not the end but really it is a beginning of a beautiful story of God redeeming all things through his son. See, last week the the people thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, and then Jesus makes this triumphal entry as the king into the city of God. But that is not the last triumphal entry our king will make. He went into Jerusalem to gain the kingdom but one day he will make another triumphal entry and he will have no opposition on that day. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, all of our cloaks will be laid out before him and all things will be new. There will be no more guilt, no more shame, no more sorrow, no more rejoicing. There will simply be the full radiance of God's glory. And I ask you to worship him today to consider him this week so that you might rejoice fully on that day and partake in the coming of his kingdom until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, that he is not only a son and a brother to us, but that he is our king, but that he is not a king who rules over us with anger or with abuse of power, but that he offers himself freely to us, that we might receive all the benefits of his kingdom. And would you allow us as we come to your table to taste of the goodness, that we might rejoice in the mighty works that you've accomplished. Would you work by the power of your spirit this week, that as we walk through Holy Week, as we enter into Jerusalem with our Lord, that we would see him new. I pray even this morning that, that those in the room who have never called you Lord Jesus would have your spirit work in them, that they would bow down, that they would lay their cloaks before you and receive the grace and love and belonging that you have for them. And for those of us who have trusted in you, would you let us never grow weary of crying out that there is peace in heaven. And that glory is in the highest because our King has come for us. We praise you, Lord. Would you move in power? In Jesus' name we pray.